0: Welcome to Conversations with Future Generation. I'm Louise Walsh, the CEO of the Impact Investing Companies, Future Generation Australia and Future Generation Global. In this series, we explore the worlds of investing, philanthropy, mental health and supporting children and youth at risk with amazing Australians who are leading the way. Joining us today is the Honourable Anna Bly AC. Anna is the CEO of the Australian Banking Association and has been since 2017. Anna, of course, is well known to Australians as a former Queensland Premier, the first woman to hold that position, and the first female Premier in Australia to be popularly elected to the role. She also demonstrated truly outstanding leadership, dealing with the horrendous Queensland floods. Anna worked for various community organisations before entering politics, including childcare, neighbourhood centres, women's refuges, trade unions, plus the Queensland Public Service. Interestingly, Anna moved back to the non-profit world after politics to be CEO of YWCA New South Wales in Sydney. Welcome, Anna. I'm definitely looking forward to our conversation. So if you don't mind, we'll get on with it now. Absolutely. So firstly, Anna, if you had to single out one single career highlight, I know that's probably a difficult question for you, but what what would it be?
1: It is a very difficult question. I did think about it, but Well, there's probably two parts to the the one thing, and it's pretty hard to go past becoming Premier of any state of Australia. And, you know, for me to become Premier of Queensland was was an extraordinary moment. And I think there are times, I think everybody is making history every day, but there are times when you can't help but be deeply conscious that you are making history. Um, And so I became Premier when Peter Beattie um, retired um, before his term was up and I was um, elected by the Labor Caucus and sworn in as Premier, uh, that I was actually sworn in by Quentin Bryce, who at that time was um, the Governor of Queensland. And, you know, it seemed a pretty remarkable thing to be standing in Government House with Quentin Bryce, who I had first met when she was um, a junior lecturer at the University of Queensland, um, and then to be sworn in as Premier, you know, many years later, and, I, and of course, you as you would expect, Quentin, in her um, comments uh, during the um, ceremony, spoke about the, the history-making moment that we were both sharing. And so that was one of those extraordinary moments. Um, and as I suppose another, the other aspect of becoming Premier is I was subsequently had to go to an election and was, as you noted in the intro, elected in my own right. And that was, you know, quite, it was was an interesting experience to go from having been a Premier that had taken on the reins without an election to one that then did have a very clear electoral mandate. And, you know, there is something about getting a mandate from the people in a very robust democracy um, that significantly enhances your authority. And... So you know, the moment and on, on election night, there was a lot of elation in the room. Um, you know, even people who had voted for the other side, um, you know, felt that it was a pretty remarkable thing that Queensland now had um, their first woman premier and saw, um, you know, that as a bit of badge of pride, even if it hadn't. I hadn't been their electoral choice. So you know, they, as I said, there's sort of two aspects of the same thing, and uh, you know, there's been many. You know, I, I've been. Lucky to enjoy many interesting and varied career moments, but it 's pretty hard to go past those ones
0: well i think there's there 's nothing like making history i 'd say and, and you certainly did that uh, in many aspects, so you know hats off to you for that now you've you 've had quite a journey with your career, and I love the fact that you 've taken on those truly challenging roles, including of course being premier, but CEO of a large nonprofit and now of course the banking association role i mean. What drives you to keep taking on these challenging roles? Because most would probably have stopped uh, taking the more challenging roles after being Premier. You keep on reaching for those challenging roles. Very good question, Louise. One I ask myself quite often. (laughs) (laughs) What is it
1: deep inside me that makes me keep running towards the fire? (laughs) And I think I have actually thought about that because, I mean, prior to becoming Premier, I had the opportunity to... um, be a member of the cabinet in a number of different roles as well. So, you know, I was the first woman education minister in Queensland, the first woman to be leader of the House in the Queensland Parliament. You know, these were all kind of roles where I had to go and carve out a place. Um, and I think what drives me is the professional satisfaction I get from wrestling really gnarly, um, difficult questions and, and public policy issues Um to the ground and I'm but by no means do I do that by myself but in all of those roles that's really what I think distinguishes them is um, you know they're, they're often really wicked problems and you don't get to solve all of them but when you do actually have the chance to tackle them to the ground that's what I find satisfying that's what excites me um, and you know there's plenty of roles like that around it seems and Um, I certainly have a a talent for finding them. So, you know, I do think people, you have to actually enjoy them to to chase them. And I do. Uh, There are times when I find it frustrating, you know, times when you think I'm going to throw, um, you know, this away. But then you get a chance to do something, to pull a lever that makes a big difference. And as I said, it's very professionally satisfying. It's very personally satisfying. Um, And I, I actually also just really enjoy the sort of intellectual challenge um, and the sort of leadership challenge of
0: of the really difficult problems, not the simple ones. And what about the, the toughest decision you've had to make professionally? I'm guessing there's been many of those. Is there one that you really remember as being the toughest?
1: You know, political leadership in a robust democracy like Australia is, uh, you know, if you're the, sitting at a premier's desk or a prime minister's desk or a minister's desk... Or a minister's desk you're inevitably dealing with really tough challenges literally every day. But I think probably the most difficult one for me was, it was during the floods and there were many tough decisions in those floods, but actually, sorry, it was the cyclone that followed the floods. And the cyclone was um, directly on course uh, about 20 hours out from landfall, um, 24 hours out. It was directly on course to hit Cairns, which is, um, you know, a very an area of high population, and the Cairns Hospital is built right on the esplanade of Cairns, and the force of the cyclone was forecast to bring with it a very significant tidal surge that uh, on all forecasts would have taken out the entire ground floor and underground uh, parts of the, town, of the hospital, and that would have meant the hospital couldn't function. It would have taken out all the electricity, um, you know, all of the gas, all of the medical supply, you know, everything. Um, there's no certainty about where a cyclone is going to hit, but we had literally kind of four hours, three hours to make the call on whether or not to relocate every patient from that hospital to Brisbane. Uh, and I can't remember now, there's about 240 patients, but that included um, a number of ICU patients, including neonatal ICU patients. And, you know, this was before a cyclone hit, so it's pouring rain. It, something like this had never been done in peacetime Australia, uh, the army had to set up a, a base hospital on the tarmac at Cairns Airport, uh, or sort of a staging post. Patients were transported. We had to get aeroplanes from everywhere, mostly the, um, the, the Air Force. Uh, the army had to stabilise patients, you know, on, in tents, in pouring rain on the, cans t- on the tarmac of the airport and bring very sick people, you know, many of them undergoing treatment, uh, into the cans. Oh, sorry, into Brisbane. Again, stabilize them on the tarmac in big army tents, and then transport them to hospital. As it turned out, um, you know, thankfully, we didn't lose one of those patients. Um, and as it turned out, the nor did the cyclone hit cans. Um, it was one of those ones that you had to make the call away
0: mm.
1: of on the basis of the information, best information you had at the time. But you're literally knowing that you were putting very fragile lives at risk. And it's one of those moments that you just know, if I get this wrong, I will live with it for the rest of my life. You know, if mm. we lose one of these neonates, you know, it would just be something very difficult to bear. And they're the sorts of things that really sit on your shoulders as the person mm. who has to make the call. I still think it was the right call. But as I said, if, if um, given the cyclone didn't hit, um, it would have been... One of those decisions that people picked over for years to come if we'd lost anyone.
0: You were, of course, Premier of Queensland during the GFC. And, and on that note, I think you you could be quite well placed to discuss the, the recession that we're now in, or some would say we're we're go, going into. What did you do then and what would you do now to navigate, stimulate and drive the Queensland economy if, if you're in that situation again?
1: Well, I should start by recognizing that the, the two the GFC and what we're experiencing now, while there were some similarities, there was also very significant differences. Um, for a start, it was banks and financial institutions that were destabilized both here and globally. So the first and most important thing that was done, um, and it was a decision for the federal government, but there was consultation with all the states, um, was the decision to guarantee um, deposits so that we didn't see a run on the banks, and that immediately served to stabilise the banking system because you needed to have that stabilised before anything that government was doing was going to have any impact or effect. Um, So, you know, Queensland is a big state that has some very significant economies. It's the only state that has more people living outside the capital city than in it. So you've got very big population centres that are also important generators of economic activity, Right up the coast, whether it's you know Rockhampton, Mackay, Townsville, Cairns, these are all big population centres. They've they've got big agricultural bases. They're servicing mining um, operations. They're big generators of tourism, as well as some of the big inland centres like Mount Isa. Once one of the first things that went globally in the GFC, um, it's happening now because of border closures, but. What, travel was one of the first things that um, people globally cancelled. You know, it's the first big discretionary mm. um, expenditure mm. that gets cancelled and, and out of the budget for the year. And so the Queensland economy got hit very badly. And it was very clear to me and, and to my team that we as a government, you know, this was a moment when government had to put their foot on the accelerator and take up the reins where um, the private sector was flagging. So we put in place, uh, we already had a very significant infrastructure program that was laid out sort of, this is what's going to happen year by year for the next 10 years. So we were well placed to bring a lot of that forward and I think that made a very big difference and there were some very big projects. But we also gave gave grants to local councils and, you know, in a state like Queensland that is structured like it is, um, you know, councils can have very significant you know economic impact when they generate their own you know they might be quite small projects in the in, a, in the you know if you compare to the national economy but they mean a lot to employment in those smaller population areas and they leave good legacies for you know sort of civic amenity i think the other thing that was really important and this is sort of less you know activity based but you know, crises, whether they're natural disasters or economic crises or pandemics, are frightening. And I think there's a really important role for leaders at moments like that, and for governments, to be to be able to provide people, firstly, with reassurance that you've got things under control, that you've got a plan, um, and comfort that you're not going to leave them behind. And you need to back that up with authority and competence. And so that was, you know, there was a lot of work done promoting. You know, we also put a lot of money into big promotional campaigns around Queensland tourism, which did certainly have an impact. But I think you can't overstate the importance of confidence and people can only have confidence in their business and the confidence in their ability to recover if they've got certainty about what government is doing, what, what is likely to happen next, why is it happening that way, you know, having people who can explain and comfort and reassure and inspire people to have hope that we can get out of this together. So, you know, I think it's a combination of actually putting money where it needs to go to stimulate, but I think there's also that really important, you know, much more sort of high-level role of a leader
0: at that time. What options do you think the Queensland government has? I mean, it's got, as you know, such a strong exposure to tourism, which obviously is being hit incredibly hard. If you were sitting in the Premier's shoes today... Is there anything more that you'd be doing to stimulate and drive the economy?
1: I think it's always a good thing not to give your successors advice. (laughs) (laughs) Noted. (laughs) No, no, I think, you know, I've I've watched not only Anastasia, the other premiers and and prime minister, and I don't envy the task. You know, they're in very uncharted waters. And Mm. I think, you know, it is very tough to make the call about how long do you play it safe and keep your borders closed? And at what point do you feel confident you can take the risk of opening them? And I think, you know, we're all watching what's happening in Melbourne right now, that the call is a tough one. Whether it's Queensland or, or tourism in Australia more broadly, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch because it's possible that the national borders of Australia could be closed for 12 months, 18 months, you know, longer. And so not only are we not going to see international visitors here, and you're right, places like Queensland, although it's not alone in this, have very high exposure to international visitation. But we're going to see Australians wanting to go on holiday and not be able to go overseas. And Australians actually spend more overseas than international visitors spend in Australia, mm. which I think is a really interesting statistic. Mm. And if you think about it, so, there, you know, I think we've got to have see some things as very possible and hopeful. If, if people can't go overseas, if Australians who want a holiday can't go overseas for two years, then they're going to find parts of their country they've never been to, and they are going to decide. It's time to take the family to Great Barrier Reef. It's time to do the trip of a lifetime to Uluru. You know, if all of those people who um, head to Bali every year substitute that with a trip to the Gold Coast or to the Great Ocean Road, then you could actually see tourism, you know, find its feet again before... Um, you know this thing is over and that's what I'd hope for. It's difficult at the moment because of course most people have still been told to we're not in lockdown except in Melbourne but we are being told to be careful to self-isolate where you can, not to be you know to social distance. So I think we're we're not going to see that substitution effect yet but it's very possible that if we can get the disease under control and keep our and the national borders are lockdown that we could actually see. A a very significant shift in
0: return to domestic tourism. Mm. I know it's interesting. My mother, who's 86, is always harping on at me about, you know, you're always travelling overseas to this, this and this, and you still haven't seen lots of places within Australia. So she's, she's sort of clapping her hands at something like this because she said, you know, finally you'll be doing the things that you should be doing in yeah. your own country. And, <laughs> yeah. and I always say, look, I'll do those later, Mum. I'll do those when I'm older. So, yeah. uh, but um, it is it, it, a real positive, I think, that's going to come out of this.
1: Mm. Yeah, and I think my, I, I was surprised, but I'm always surprised by that statistic because it seems so expensive when you go overseas. But Australia's, you know, and we see so many visitors here, it sort of felt like it was probably roughly the same, but actually we spend more overseas than international visitors spend here. So, you know, even if you only substituted, you know, three quarters of it, there'll be a
0: there could be a real impact. Now I just want to change tactic. I want to just I'm interested in your views of the new national cabinet that of course has replaced COAG. I mean, it seems to have been getting a lot of positive press since it formed due to COVID. I mean, where do you see the opportunities in this collective leadership beyond COVID? Let's assume we get we get through. Um, this situation we're currently in do you think it would lead to any reduced levels of government in Australia to improve the complexity and layers of government or, or am I just dreaming
1: well i think a strong and robust democ- one of the signs of a strong and robust democracy is that it's that it evolves and Australia's federation has evolved from the moment um, the constitution began you know there's been regular, challenges in the High Court to various powers of either the states or the federal government. Um, you know, and the the um, division of responsibilities between the state and federal government in 2020 is vastly different than it was in 1901. And that's largely been by either settlement of the issue in the High Court, or just as often by an agreement between the states and territories. But I think the National Cabinet presents a real opportunity. I think it's something that... Um, I think it's been a really critical part of the success um, that Australia has had to date in managing the COVID um, outbreak. And I think one of the, what's unique about it, what makes it different to COAG is that, as I understand it, Premiers and First Ministers have agreed that they will be as bound by the decisions of the National Cabinet as they would be by a decision of their own Cabinet. And so it relies on a lot of faith from each Premier's, um, you know, caucus members or Cabinet members particularly. So, you know, cabinet, State Cabinets are no doubt debating some of these issues and expressing a view and a preference. Their Premier then heads off to the National Cabinet and it's the nature of those sorts of meetings that you won't... You, you often have to change your position during the meeting because you get different information or it's clear that you can't find consensus unless someone shifts... A combination of those things. And so you really need to hold the confidence of your own cabinet um, and they need to be absolutely confident that you've taken all of their views into the national environment, but that you've made the right decision on behalf of the state because you've agreed to be bound by it. Whereas COAG, um, you know, certainly people reached binding agreements from time to time, but there was certainly no expectation that you would come out of a COAG meeting you know, with decisions that would be implemented immediately, um, and so it's quite a different culture. Having said all that, for the national cabinet to work, there has to be an ability to to leave ideology at the door. And in the middle of a national crisis, that's kind of an instinctive thing, I think that politicians do. You know, there are there are moments when the 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 public interest, the urgency of the public interest is so commanding that you just instinctively know that if you start arguing party politics, um, you're in a bad place. And, you know, all of that's been, I think, left at the door. I mean, there's certainly been some ups and downs and hiccups with the National Cabinet process, but I haven't felt that any of them were party political. Um, I feel like you know, there's been some genuine disagreements about things like when should schools open or should schools close and people debating the medical um, and the health advice. But I haven't seen that as, as I said, driven by party politics or ideology. And so it has proved to be a really effective decision making body. I think for us to make any judgment about its longevity, we probably need to see um, how well it operates outside of the crisis and without that sense of urgency, where life and death sort of decisions are at stake. Because I think the reality is that from time to time, you know, once you're outside of an emergency, as various players around the table get closer to their own um, elections, it's probably going to be likely that there'll be a few party political outbreaks. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think uh, so? <laughs> 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 I bet. I I don't think it's going to lead to a reduction in the levels of government anytime soon, but it could be. You know, in a hundred years' time, if that happens, people might date the evolution of that from this moment.
0: Hmm.
1: And, but I do think it has already um, gone a long way to, on some important things to improve the layers and, and complexity of different levels of government. Uh, you know, they've been able to break through on a number of things that, you know, there has just been no progress on for a long time. And I, you know, I think the other thing is in politics, as in every in every organisation, sometimes when you do things often enough, they become a habit. You know, if you mm-hmm. involve yourself in that form of decision making, and it regularly and reliably re- results in successful initiatives, then everybody will seek it out. Uh, all of those premiers and, and prime ministers will actively seek it out as a place to solve problems and. I think that would be in the national interest. So I think mm.
0: there's a bit more to go yet. <laughs> and I think also, and look, you know, just from the public's point of view, I think it's it's meant a, a fair increase in goodwill for, for politicians and governments as well because, let's face it, the average Joe Blow is pretty sceptical. But to see governments and politicians and different sides working together which of course they have to, in a you know, crisis like this. But that 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 has been a very positive, I think, for for um, you know from what I can see, which which you know is is fantastic, I have to say.
1: I said before, I think it's instinctive um, for leaders, you know, when there is such a big crisis, to just it's I don't, no one has to tell them to put the politics aside; they just do it. But I think one of the things that drives that is you know, generally you don't get to become Premier or Prime Minister unless you've been around the traps for a while and had quite a bit of political experience. And, um, you know, I think there is a high political price to be paid when people play party politics at the wrong time. The public has watched this and I think seen it as a very good move. That's because it's given them confidence that Mm. the right people are in the right room making the right decisions and not getting bogged down in petty arguments Um, and that the structures are actually serving the country. I think for any politician around there that started to play party politics around that table, there's no doubt that it would begin to erode public confidence. Um, You know, if you started having party political fights between the Prime Minister and a Premier or two or three different Premiers from different political persuasions, people would just lose confidence in everything they were saying, not just the thing they were fighting about. And the worst thing you can do at a moment like this is behave in a way that erodes public confidence, that the people who are in charge are capable, competent, and will keep me safe.
0: Mm. Yeah, well said, well said. Well, look, can we now talk a bit about the banks? Because, you know, obviously, that's relevant with your current role and your views on how banks' perceptions have changed with various stakeholders i mean after years and years of regulations inquiries fines etc most recently of course they have reduced some of the pain of the economic fallout by allowing loan payment holidays how much goodwill has this brought the banks with regulators and governments
1: well you're right uh, in your observations louise there's been it's been a very Tough five years for bank, for the reputation of banks uh, and, you know, the Royal Commission, I think, laid a lot of behaviour um, or made a lot of behaviour very public that, that was, you know, just did not meet community expectations. I think it's been interesting for banks to come into this crisis. They came in with two things. Firstly, there's been a decade of prudential reforms globally since the GFC. And those reforms have all been um, targeted at ensuring that the banking system in a a crisis um, is strong enough and stable enough to be a shock absorber and, importantly, not to have to call on governments and taxpayers to bail them out. Now, that didn't happen in Australia during the GFC, but it did happen in enough jurisdictions around the world for prudential regulators globally to set in train 10 years of reforms that meant that when this crisis hit, Australian banks prudentially were stronger than they have ever been. So they came into the crisis, you know, better capitalised with stronger balance sheets than they've ever gone into anything. And so they had big capital buffers that have allowed them to play a really important role, you know, supporting the economy and supporting the, the and household and business finances but they also came into it, so that's on the kind of competency and financial side of things, if you like. But they also came into it just twelve months out of a you know having just um, you know come out of a royal commission just twelve months earlier, and during that twelve months they had the final report for them to contemplate. They had a vast array of recommendations that they had to consider, and in some cases implement themselves as opposed, and while others required government to implement them. So they came into the crisis, I think, with a very different lens than they might have gone into some previous events. And that lens was very, very clearly focused on what would the community, what do the people of Australia expect of us at a moment like this? And so those two things came together, I think, in a really critical and important way. Um, One, they had the financial strength to do something, and two, they um, they were motivated to use that financial strength to do the right thing. One of the biggest tasks for banks at the moment is to rebuild um, trust with um, the Australian public and rebuild trust with um, regulators and government. And I know I always say, you know, rebuilding trust is pretty straightforward in some ways. Um, You can only be trusted if you're trustworthy. And being trustworthy means that people can rely on you to consistently and reliably behave in a particular way. You know, those journeys always start with the first step. And so I think When banks announced that they would be deferring payments, I felt there was a certain amount of surprise in the community that the banks had kind of done something that that they didn't expect them to do in a good way. And I don't doubt that that um, has contributed to to some rebuilding of goodwill and trust. But, you know, I don't think for one moment it's any case for resting on laurels here, as I said, this sort of these are the sorts of behaviours that people will want to see consistently and reliably before they'll completely, you know, rebuild trust. Interestingly, on the on the front on the government and regulator front, again, these sorts of crises cannot be managed without um, a great deal of partnership. So, you know, with wearing my old political hat, um, you know, I went through a number of significant disasters, the GFC. Um, a drought, a, um, a, you know, biggest flood the country's ever seen. And you learn every time. And one of the big learnings for me is always just the kind of incredible power of partnership. Um, you asked before about, you know, getting Queensland back on its feet post GFC. The government couldn't have done it on its own. Um, you know, we had to work very, very much hand in hand with corporate Australia. We had to work hand in hand with the community sector and the not for profit sector. Because it's knitting all those three kind of pillars of a civil society together that makes things that, that work. You make things work in in emergency circumstances. It would I think it's fair to say that there's been incredible opportunities to work as trusted partners with the government, particularly over the last four or five months. I think it's fair to say that both the current government and the opposition have been quite cynical and um, skeptical about banks what they've now found is you know crises um, crises are an opportunity to sort of reaffirm your purpose and i think banks have taken that opportunity and they're proving the very important purpose of banking to the people of australia and to the and the economy of the country you know emergencies and crises just demand that everybody has to pivot often 360 degrees and they need to do it really quickly so banks, for example, could not have agreed to offer a repayment deferral to all customers without having a conversation about it. And in normal times, a conversation like that would be illegal under the under competition law. Um, and so we had to very quickly in the early days, seek authorization from the ACCC to have those discussions and to reach agreement about those matters. Now, the ACCC, of course, they're they're a regulator. They're an enforcement agency, and they spend, you know, every minute of every day making sure that no one in corporate Australia is colluding or collaborating on anything um, that, you know, relates to a price or product in a way that would be anti-competitive. So, you know, suddenly they were having to authorize and facilitate discussions, which, as I said, normally um, would be a breach of the law. That requires a high degree of trust. That 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 authorization won't be abused. Um, And they didn't just do it for banking, they had to do it for supermarkets to make sure that supermarkets could actually get food to people and and manage supply across different companies, etc. As well as other sectors of the economy. Um, Similarly, the deferrals could not have happened without a lot of partnership and cooperation and collaboration with APRA, the Prudential Regulator and ASIC. They've always had to bring their mandate their legislated mandate to the table and they their job is to be cautious and careful but ultimately um, we have managed you know through all of those all those sort of regulatory um, frameworks to find solutions that make these sorts of deferrals and assistance for customers possible um, in a way that really has made a difference to the financial well-being of households but also can do that without endangering the strength and stability of the system. It's a very long answer to your question, Louise.
0: (laughs) No, no, that's fine. No, no, that's fine. Um, Thank
1: you. Yeah. You know, I suppose the one thing I would finish with is I've just been talking about that happening at, at an institutional level, the government talking to banks, banks talking to regulators, regulators talking to government. But actually, you know, governments, regulators, banks, they're all just people. And what happens in these kinds of events is you are in the trenches with people and you inevitably, you see their strengths, you see their weaknesses, and you forge, you know, relationships and partnerships that last way beyond the mm. event itself. So I think that's going to be an important part of the recovery and the rebuild beyond that. Mm. As I said, you know, mm. I've, I've been in the trenches with with people, <laughs> in, you know, making life and death decisions. And you can't mm. go through that with people. and not come out of it with a bit mm. of a with a with a maybe a renewed respect and admiration that actually this person really knew what they were talking about kept their kept their head in you know under fire um and was a very important contributor and i think banks have seen a lot of that in their regulators and the and um the government agencies involved but uh, i think that's
0: been also a two-way street all right, and just one final question, Anna. A lot of people think running a non-profit is a, is a piece of cake and CEOs shouldn't be paid as much relative to the corporate sector. What's your view on this and your experience?
1: Oh, I think it's devilishly difficult.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, no,
1: I don't agree with that. I've certainly heard those statements and I've certainly, you know, I've, I've seen people from Corporate Australia join the boards of, of not-for-profits and they very quickly find out just how complicated and difficult it is, partly because for a lot of not-for-profits, not all, but particularly those that are in the sort of social services area, you're dealing with really um, complex, you know, human problems, and it's messy and it's difficult. And, um, you know, there's no often no sort of simple or easy short-term solution. But at a governance level, you're also dealing with a board that are, you know, by and large, they are volunteers. And what you can ask of and expect of volunteers is vastly different to what you can ask of a paid board director. The ACNC has done a lot of work around governance, but it's a very different governance framework than an ASX-listed company, um, you know, where there is literally hundreds of years of law um, and very, very clear and strictly policed parameters around uh, the expectations of boards and board directors, not that there's no no crossover, but often means there's not a lot of framework and safety net for, you know, very well-meaning people who get involved, very well motivated, and often really struggle with the fact that, you know, not-for-profits put all of their money into their services. So there's not a board secretariat to do the work for them. You know, all (laughs) those sorts of just really basic things. And generally, um, you know, most successful not-for-profits draw their funding from a combination of sources. So there's some government funding, but that's generally not enough to rely on. Or the great thing about not-for-profits is that the people who join them either as employees or board members um, or in other roles or as volunteers, people are generally driven by a very passionate sense of purpose and mission and that is both a a very that's a real strength and you'd never want to lose it but it can sometimes be a real weakness you know when people are driven by a mission it's often more difficult to have the kind of level-headed hard-headed conversations that you would have around a corporate board because there's so much emotion and personal attachment to the issue involved you know, those sorts of things are much harder to navigate or or at least as hard to navigate as anything that I've seen in corporate Australia. So um, I agree with you. I think the, um, I don't think we value the people who run these organizations or the people who work in them enough. You know, I have the same view about childcare workers. There's something about us all collectively as a society that some of our lowest paid workers are those who are raise, helping to raise the next generation and look after the most vulnerable people in our community. Mm. if we could change that, that would be a good thing.
0: Well, look, big thanks for joining us today, Anna. I mean, it's been an absolute um, privilege and delight to chat with you and to get your insights into your career journey. Of course, the impact of COVID and the current recession, and and as well, of course, the banks. Um, I just love people who've had diverse and challenging careers, and you've certainly done that in spades. I mean, hats off to you, and may the stellar journey continue. I'm looking forward to the fifth episode of Conversations with Future Generation, which will be released uh, in August. And Anna, happy birthday for next week. It's a shame there's no big parties for us this year to celebrate. Who knows? Hopefully that'll happen later in the year or next year. So stay safe and goodbye all for now. Thank you. Thank you.